Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. And this is what you get in person, folks. Welcome back to another EMS on the Mountain. This one, an episode from the mountain. That's right. Heck yeah. We're up here on duty, sitting in the bay. Sorry if you hear extra noise. And maybe you'll get lucky and hear us called away to go save a life or treat a stub toe. Today's on the mountain episode, we're going to do a review of a previous call of ours. And I think uh, Mike's going to set the scene for us. All right. So all the usual disclaimers, I should probably actually add to the beauty of the episodes as well. Names have been changed, some details have been modified, etc. We do want to make sure we're maintaining anonymity and such. This particular call was located inside of a place we do work. It occurred at a, what I would call, highly trafficked area of the recreational venue. Uh, it includes a pretty popular, I'll describe it as a graduated stepped waterfall area that a lot of folks hike down to. It's actually not that far off of access roads and such. So it's a pretty popular place. It's also near some pretty highly trafficked camping areas. And basically, to sum it up, it's pretty easy to get to as yeah. opposed to a lot of other areas. So it sees a lot of traffic. The access trail starts at the top of, I mean, waterfalls require some sort of <laughs> incline, right? Waterfalls don't flow out of the earth on a flat nature. The, the access area, the trailhead starts at the top of the mountaintop. And then you hike down to go to the fancy pants area. And then at that point, as a visitor, you have two choices. You can turn around, hike back up, or you can hike further down the trail. Mm -hmm. It eventually links up with the access road. And that access road brings you, think of it as horizontally away from the waterfall area, and then eventually back to an access road. And then you hike along the access road for a while to get back to the trailhead to access your car. So think of it as like a big triangle, if you will. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of a big old loop. Uh, yes, yeah, so at the base of this particular trail, yeah, you can connect to a couple other trails to complete a couple other loops or continue hiking straight down for additional time. So, yeah. So it's super popular and uh, pretty easy to access in general. All right. All right. So with that, this call was initially dispatched as an individual who had fallen from one of the falls. And then while en route, there started to be, we won't say it was conflicting information, but they weren't quite sure if there were going to be two people now who had possibly fallen, simply because they were receiving multiple calls to the dispatch center, and both patients were very similar in description, and so they weren't sure if they were hearing the story about the same patient or multiple patients. So initially it came out as one, it did turn out to be eventually solidified as two distinct patients. And again, this is an area where if you're down near the bottom of this area, your cell phone service is pretty limited and spotty. If it, you have it at all, most people have to hike all the way back up towards the top where the main parking lot is for this area, the trailhead, if you will. So that's why there was a bit of the phone, the telephone game. One person called this person who called that person. So there's a bit of relaying. And some of that is also due to the fact that people, once they saw the incident occurred, would run up to the top, tell somebody to call somebody. And so there was multiple reports for multiple responding or reporting parties. And so there was a bit of initial confusion in the beginning. But after that, the dispatch call came out for available EMS rescue resources to go. And your two favorite podcast hosts. This guy out. and that guy, just so we're clear. 
Yeah, if it's not us, that kind of hurts. But, and also, it's probably true. But it's yeah. not us. <laughs> so we, we initially went to the top of the trail, the standard parking area that most folks park at. We gathered a little more information from bystanders, and it became pretty clear to us that they were somewhere down beyond the halfway point of the trail. So we opted to get back to the unit and proceed down to the lower access area through some, there's some security gates and stuff. Yes, yeah, just some. And then we drove down the access road and began hiking up trail to find the two individuals. We found them after being pointed in the correct direction by bystanders and ultimately determined that from where we were, we went to a common observation point of the waterfalls and we were able to then finally visually confirm that we saw what appeared to be two patients yep. approximately 15 to 20 yards apart from each other. One was, I'll describe it as further down a muddy slope adjacent to the running water. So both patients were out of the water at this point. One had not gone quite as far down the laddered waterfall stairs. It's, it's a number of rock faces that the water cascades over. The second patient was slightly further down. Sean and I basically attempted some mud skiing <laughs> and uh, skied our way sort of down this muddy slope to get to the patients. Sean took over patient, what we will call patient number one, and I took over care of patient number two. All right. So, yeah, and that was just really a random choice. Mm-hmm. Once we identified the, uh, these were our patients, it was kind of like, hey, you want to go high or low? And Mike chose low and that's where it went. That's so, where it went. <laughs> yeah. So there was no planning as to far as like any known quantity and help determine that. That was really just luck of the draw. So my patient, once I got down to her, she had within one or two minutes just been pulled from the water. Bystanders there say she had been in the water on the falls for about 10 minutes. Uh, I think there was a lot of, I think they were a bit floundering in the water. People were kind of waiting to see if these two individuals would make their own way out and was determined that they were kind of hurt and needed some help. Then some, some good Samaritans waded in literally and helped pull them out of the water and started to provide a little initial care on scene. So. And if you're not aware, there's no such thing, uh, outside of some hot springs, there's no such thing as warm mountain water. No. I have never, again, outside of the caveat of a hot spring, I have never experienced anything remotely close to warm in the mountains as far as flowing water. And this is running water. It's usually only a couple of feet deep, depending Mm -hmm. on where you're at. But so obviously, if you're listening, you can already identify one potential problem with the patient. So as soon as we got her out. Was that because she was wet or was it because she was cold? Yes. Okay. All right. If you don't know, being wet is one thing, but being wet and cold, well, that's two things. I'm a paramagician. <laughs> it goes back. Uh, thank you, Fitz, for that one. So when we got there, or I got to my patient, she'd been pulled out of the water, and some of the Good Samaritan bystanders there were helping to try to get her warm. Some folks had pulled out some extra fleece jackets and some things trying to cover her up, trying to help keep her warm. One individual was trying to bandage. There was a laceration above her right eye that she was trying to bandage up. Not having the most success with her attempts just because of the way she was trying to do it. I give her props for seeing the bleedy thing and trying to do some work on it, but we had to fix that. So initial patient assessment. So I'll just start basically head to toe. So looking from the top of her head, there was definitely some bruising and tenderness around her right orbit. Obvious bruising, definitely the laceration there. Was some minor bleeding. Uh, Most of it was fairly controlled. It wasn't too significant at that point. Nothing else around the head was it concerning at that point. Working her way around back to the front, she did have blood inside of both of her nares, the nostrils. Bleeding there had stopped, but obviously she had had a nosebleed out of both both nares at one point. There was coming down the chest, nothing. 
abdomen was soft and non-tender, all four quadrants, which was good. Hips were stable and intact. And only thing with her lower extremities, she had a pretty fairly good size, about a four centimeter laceration above her right patella, which is the kneecap, or I'm sorry, her left knee. And you could actually see the kneecap, right? It was a good, deep, solid laceration. And you could see down and actually see bone with that one. Uh, and that really wraps up core and lower extremities. So on her backside, she had a pretty significant amount of abrasions, some minor bleeding. Think of it as like some pretty good road rash, basically from the top of her back on the right side, from around the shoulder blades and coming all the way down the back on down to her right hip. So she had slid pretty significantly, most likely against some rocks as she was making her way to the end of this fall. It was a little bit of bruising around the ribs on that right side as well. So coming on upper extremities, there was pretty good looking deformity, not super angulated, but you could see some deformity. And there was some marked crepitus on the right forearm. So that one I was pretty sure was going to be fractured at that point. And then there was some tenderness and swelling around her left wrist as well. And essentially those were it for the initial noted injuries. Lung sounds were clear and equal. Her initial vital signs were good. Blood pressure initially was like a 110 over 90. Pulse was up there attacking a bit as to be expected. Respirations were probably at that point about a 24. She was breathing fairly quickly. And a lot of that was the cold water immersion getting out. And just the, I think the overall shock of the experience of taking what we estimate to be from bystander eyewitnesses who saw the fall about a 20 foot fall. Mm-hmm. And that's a, and this is a fall into, again, some shallow water and rocks, sliding across some rocks before kind of coming to rest against some rocks and then getting help pulled out. So both of these patients took a pretty decent fall, right? So PMS was all good, which was, was good to know. Patient did deny any loss of consciousness. Um, she didn't claim any head, neck, or spinal pain, which was good. Bystanders there weren't sure about any loss of consciousness, but they don't recall noticing her unresponsive at any point. So most likely she was not. Just because of the mechanism, I did call her, uh, didn't put her on a backboard at that point. She'd already been out and moving our guidelines up here. If she wasn't showing any neurological deficits or anything else or obvious injury, we don't have to backboard. But she was putting a collar just out of precaution because she did take a 20-foot fall and did hit her head. So there was some concern there. Uh, so initial trauma assessment, that's what we found. My initial treatments, gained IV access administered some pain meds and Zofran for nausea, just in case, and then basically set her up on a normal saline drip, just KVO, just in case we needed that later. And of course, put her up on one of my pads, pulled out, you know, I had a fleece jacket. I put that on top of her. We started getting her wrapped in, you know, a space blanket and some other things just to try and help start warming her up. Not a lot done as far as active warming with her at that point. And that's really about it as far as all of our initial actions. And with that, Michael, tell us about patient number two. All right. So my patient, as mentioned, was slightly further downstream, downhill from Sean's. When I got to her, she was screaming in pain. (laughs) She was letting the world know that her boo-boo hurt real bad. There were, call it six to eight bystanders that were attempting to just sort of carry her mm-hmm. by holding onto her clothes and sort of dragging her away from the water. They were headed toward the adjacent trail, I believe. I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time interviewing them, but I believe in an attempt to get her to assistance. Yeah. I immediately deployed a tarp 
and had them just put her down on the tarp and begun my initial assessment. Again, I mentioned she was uh, actively vocalizing the level of pain she was in. Uh, I immediately noted that she had a, uh, a compound fracture to her left arm, like a couple of bones sticking out, yeah, wrists was... hanging sideways. She broke her arm pretty good. Yeah, this was one of those gnarly fractures that you kind of see in a textbook. Yes. And when you get one in real life, you're like, oh, yeah, snap. That's, so we, uh, broken. we definitely laid it down as in a relatively clean <laughs> environment. And there was, a, there was a bystander EMT that was there that mm -hmm. was hiking. I immediately instructed that EMT after they identified themselves to begin working on stabilizing the arm with another responding EMT that had come inbound. Mm -hmm. And I immediately began trauma assessment head to toe, cutting clothes off, looking for injuries. So no major injuries to her skull. She had some abrasions from, that you would expect from mm -hmm. uh, taking a ride down a waterfall. Collarbone was intact. I've mentioned the broken left arm. She was breathing at about, she was, she was breathing, I'll call it rapidly. I estimated it at about 20 breaths per minute. Uh, anybody that tells you they can look at a patient and tell you how fast they're breathing is whatever. But she was not breathing at a normal rate. I made an estimate of in about 15 seconds, she took about five breaths or so. Uh, so I called it 20. She had a large laceration over her right eye. It wasn't bleeding, but it was probably, I'll call it eight to 11 centimeters long. I could see skull through the laceration, but it was not bleeding profusely. So I moved on. It turned out that one of the, the Good Samaritan EMT that was there had one of those home use battery powered portable blood pressure cuffs in her pack. Nice. And she whipped it out and I was like, cool, throw that thing on that arm that's not broken. Give me some sort of numbers. Upper torso seemed to be intact. Sternum was not in a bad way. Hips were stable. I couldn't really get any sort of response upon palpation because it turned out that uh, everything hurt. <laughs> and she was letting me know that uh, her pain was like 47 out of 10. So given the number of limited resources we had, after I did an initial assessment and determined that we had two what I would call critical patients, I actually had to assume the role of on-scene command along with providing care. So I was trying to manage a patient. Sean was managing his patient, and I was trying to vector in additional resources and give reports out on the radio to the dispatch center so that they could start coordinating other resources. At this point, I requested that we launch a helicopter that had hoist capabilities that we have in our region uh, and began working on my patient. IV access was established. I put her on a saline drip as well, just so that I could manage blood pressure if needed. I was concerned about her getting cold more than anything mm -hmm. else. At the time this call happened, which was a number of years ago, there was still sort of the mantra of like, cold fluid makes people cold. So I just put her on a drip until I had better data as to whether her blood pressure was low. That then broke out a manual blood pressure cuff and confirmed the numbers from the automated device, palpated a, a pulse. It was in the 90s. And then I immediately swacked her with 100 milligrams of, uh, or excuse me, 100 micrograms of fentanyl. Yeah. I was like, wow, man. Yeah. <laughs> to help alleviate the pain. That also led us take the edge off enough that we were able to manipulate the arm into a position that we could splint it. it. This was a textbook level fracture where like the arm went up and the hand went to the right. So it was not, it was not going to be possible to typically in EMS, we say splint it in place, don't move it around. There was no way we were getting her into a Stokes basket and then getting her wrapped up in something to keep her warm and then getting her into a helicopter with her arm crooked. So we had to take a one-time effort to sort of reposition it so that we could get uh, splinting materials around it and stabilize it. We then secured her arm to her torso mm -hmm. and prepared her for evacuation. Again, the visitors there, the, the bystanders had taken out additional clothing and stuff. We put that on her to keep her warm. I also had her collared and then I had her wrapped in a space blanket in an attempt to retain as much heat as possible. At this point, 
uh, additional resources came on scene. Again, we do wilderness work, right? It's not like you can call for an engine company and they're there in six minutes. It was probably a good... Oh, I estimate at least 15 to 20 yeah, minutes. 15 to 20 minutes. That's what I was going to say as well. Before any additional resources other than Sean and myself and the two EMTs I just mentioned were there. So it was basically two paramedics, two EMTs trying to manage two critically ill patients in the woods for about 20 minutes with the supplies we had on our back. As I mentioned, once the additional resources arrived on scene, I grabbed one of the first inbound people that I recognized. And I said, hey, I need you to take command. Mm-hmm. I need to go play paramedic and handed that off to, uh, he's actually been a longtime friend of mine, but he happened to be in the park, heard the call and came on down. And then some additional resources came in and we coordinated hoisting the patients out. I will mention initially, our original plan was to, we believed my patient to be more critical after conversation. Uh, Our original plan was to hoist my patient and then request a ground transport ALS unit to the top of the trail. Yeah. And we were going to ground transport the second patient because we did not believe that they were as critical as the first. To uh, alleviate some confusion, that would be patient two, Mike's patient, was the planned hoist. The planned hoist. Just because we, she had very obvious traumatic injuries. Patient one, the one I was working, obviously I had some injuries as well, but they didn't at the time seem quite as bad. And so my initial recommendation for her, uh, just based on initial presentations, was for an ALS ground transport to one of the closer, I think it's a level two trauma center. Yep. Which in hindsight, well, we'll we'll talk about what happened at the end, but I'll mention that the Part of the reason that we did that was, one, we did not know the air asset was capable of taking two patients simultaneously. This is true. And two, we only had one air asset in the area that could hoist. Yes. So once we tied up the one asset that could hoist a patient, we kind of had to get number two out of the woods. Yeah. So we initially called for a, an ALS ground transport unit, and then we were going to determine whether we were going to call for another air medical, more traditional air medical right. unit to fly her once we got more information. Yep, absolutely. So you want to tell us what happened from there, Sean? All right. Yeah. So as Mike mentioned, the call was made for the helicopter, which fortunately was a good sunny day and they were currently mission free. We're like, heck yeah, we're coming. So unbeknownst to me, uh, because most of the command and support personnel that were coming were actually down at the lower patient. I did have one other EMS volunteer who did show up and assisted me, another EMT. So I ended up having basically two EMTs with me at, at a certain point, plus a couple of the, a couple of good Samaritan bystanders, one young boy scout who was, who was my tree, helped hold up my <laughs> IV. He thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> At least he was there helping holding an IV bag. He thought that was pretty neat. And so for a good while, I wasn't aware that they were planning to also hoist patient one. So I was still planning for my ground transport. That's how I was preparing to package the patient and everything else. And then just because there was about a 20-ish yard distance between these two patients and an elevation, a small elevation change, you know, probably 20-foot gain. Mm-hmm. or lost, depending what direction you're going. So one of the actual other volunteers that was there, who's also an EMT, he started kind of just relaying information back and forth between Mike and myself. And he actually helped shuttle some gear. I had a little additional extra gear that Mike needed. Just a lot of it had to do with that splinting that arm. Mm-hmm. We needed a couple extra triangle bandages some and some things to yep. uh, help stabilize that arm better, just because it was a pretty significant fracture. And it's probably worth note, just for those listening that are not familiar with this, Often in 
much more wilderness environments, you will have a single repeater channel. It's not like yeah. the radio <laughs> system is a trunked network where yeah. I could just say, hey, I want another channel on the trunk for communication between the two. That was it. So the one radio net we had was tied up with coordinating inbound resources. And flushing of porta potties. So <laughs> and flushing of porta potties. Literally. It so, was awesome. So Sean and I could not talk to each other on the radio. We had to have a runner go up and down the hill yeah. to communicate when I said, Hey, I need extra triangle bandages. Do you have them? We're gonna talk about the medication situation as well. But we yeah. kind of had to have a runner go back and forth because we did not have the ability to use a radio and the noise of the rescue and the waterfall and the helicopter made it way too loud for us to yell to each other. Yeah. So yeah, bottom line, and then other guy comes up and he's like, hey, there's been a change. We're now going to also hoist your patient. I'm like, oh, okay, sweet. And next thing you know, a couple of guys come trotting down the hill with a Stokes basket for me. So we kind of changed how we had the patient prepared, kind of redid some things, put the, uh, put the foam pad back down inside the Stokes. We kind of got her, I didn't want to lay her down yet, quite vertical, like in there, just because mm-hmm. you mean she, was, she was doing, yeah, she was doing well sitting up, maintaining her own airway. And for those who aren't aware, you know, you lay a patient flat and all of a sudden you lose a lot of your lung capacity mm-hmm. for good ventilation. I didn't, not that she was having any trouble breathing, but I didn't want to monkey with a good thing at that time. She was splinted up on the, the one arm that I was 90% sure was a solid fracture. So, you know, she had a traditional SAM splint with a sling and swath on that arm. Um, we'd bandaged up the rest of her boo-boos. She was starting to feel better. But prior to that point, when we were almost getting ready to put her in the Stokes, I was doing another set of repeat vitals and I noticed her blood pressure had dropped down. She was now down to a 90 over like 60. So it's kind of like, hmm, that's a little unusual because the previous two had been up in that consistent one plus, you know, mm-hmm. 110, 120. So gave her a quick fluid bolus, about 350 ml, which brought her pressures right back up to a nice 120. Felt comfortable then. We got word that the helicopter was actually going to be inbound shortly. So we did a full transfer over because, you know, you have to get them scrapped in and everything else. We want to make sure there's nothing going to be loose. For those that work around helicopters, you know what I'm talking about. Pilots get very, very aggravated when loose things start flying around the air around their airplane, Yeah, uh, particularly when it makes its way up into the rotors. Even small, like they don't want a lightweight Mylar space blanket coming anywhere near the rotors and their engines, right? Nobody wants that. That's how helicopters go down. So I had to make sure everything was well secured. I made the choice to sacrifice my personal fleece jacket and kept it on her because she was definitely cold. Then we put a fleece hat on her. Somebody gave up a fleece hat that we put on her head as well. Yep. Got her all set up. And that was, it was summer at this time. Oh, no, it was, yeah, like, well, early fall. Early fall. But the weather was still, it was warm. I mean, shorts and t-shirt weather still. So ambient air temperature was fine. It was just their long exposure in the cold water. At that point, Mike's patient, patient number two, was now loaded into a Stokes basket. And we decided that the best hoist point was going to be the middle of the river. Basically, yeah, right in the middle of the water where we were at. And so, and uh, if you look at the socials after this post goes out, you'll see a picture of everybody standing in the middle of this waterway, getting wet, potentially up to knee deep up to in knee a deep. couple of spots. The for- canopy was so thick that there was no way we were hoisting from anywhere on either yep. side of the river. We had to use the pseudo river creek-ish area. Yeah. As the only clear area for a helicopter to come on station above and hoist from. So we stood in the river. Yeah, and basically we were able to stabilize. You know, at this point, both Stokes got moved down. Patient number one there, my patient, stayed on the bank, as it were. The first, and the cable came down with the first basket to pick up, came down, picked her up, and basically went up unaided at that point. Yeah, we had taglines. We just it. had taglines, that's it. Um, 
And, and then, then once they once they flew off, they radioed back and said, hey, we can take two. Yeah, we'll take the second. So that's when that decision was made to take the second as well. Yep. So at that point, the helicopter went to a predetermined landing zone not too far from the rescue site. Yep. Landed. They offloaded patient number two. Yep. The first patient that went in is patient number two, if you're following the story that I'm telling very poorly. <laughs> and believe they were leaving her with a paramedic. <laughs> It was an EMT who was a little bit feeling overwhelmed at the moment. It turned out at the time the EMT had gotten their card like three weeks earlier and had not yet been released as a provider, but they did not know that. Yeah. And then the helicopter waited on station there at the landing zone. Actually, they flew off again and landed in a different place as to not be hovering over the patient. Yeah. And then waited for us to call back. Uh, at that point, the, the crew on the helicopter, it's a two-man helicopter. It's a pilot and a technician. They had called and said, hey, since we're taking two people, we're going to need two providers. Yep. So given that Sean and I were the only two paramedics there, I requisitioned yeah, uh, harness equipment because mine was down in our vehicle down at the bottom. I, I, uh, I uh, acquired a harness from an individual similar to my size and shoved myself into it. And helicopter came back on station and I was hoisted with patient number two yep. and then took a ride in the helicopter back to the landing zone. At that point, we sat down again. The Patient number two that was at the LZ was then loaded into the other side of the helicopter. For clarity, it's a Bell-style helicopter with the engine in the middle. Yep. If anybody's familiar with helicopters, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a huge helicopter, but it was big enough to take two patients and a couple of guys shoved in the back. And at that point, we lifted off and took about a 15-minute flight to the nearby regional level one trauma center. To it, for anybody else that's ever done any of this, this sort of work, when you when you come in from the elevator from the roof down as opposed to the bottom up, uh, you typically come in the same clothes and the same equipment you were wearing when you were <laughs> in the middle of the woods. The technician from the helicopter and myself got a lot of weird looks. I was soaking wet yeah. in, a, in a harness I didn't yeah. quite fit into, covered in mud and goo. And I have, to, I have to commend the crew at the hospital. Some of the best, this particular facility is a teaching hospital, so it's more than the normal number of people you would find in a trauma yeah. bay. It was a lot of people in the trauma bay. And the attending physicians that were in charge in both rooms were very, very clear that they wanted everybody to be quiet and stop yelling over me so that I could give them a report as to what happened. And it was, it was refreshing. This doesn't always happen when you roll into a hospital. Yeah. And I actually had to ping pong a couple of times between the two trauma bays answering questions about both patients based on the notes Sean gave me because I was the only other person that had been anywhere near them at the time of the incident. And then I hung out for a while at the hospital until I got a ride. The helicopter went home. Yeah. And so this also brings up kind of a good point is because the plan changed. You know, I was planning to ride with our ambulance to link up with this other ALS transport and then potentially another helicopter, traditional HEMS pickup and do a patient transfer. But when that changed, I basically had to take my field notes from my patient and then hand them to Mike because he had barely seen my patient as we walked by the initial, you know, he saw her once walking by yep. going down to his patient. So he only knew the little bits of information we had shared between each other up until that point. And so this is one of those times where it's good to have good written notes and some sort of repeatable format mm -hmm. where he doesn't have to try and decipher just random notebook scribbles to try and do a, a good patient handover back in the emergency department. So gave him a copy of my field notes, which had all my vital signs, meds administered, the injuries I had found. So he could at least give this report to the ED. So that might be something for you to keep in mind. Not saying 
you must, but it turned out we've had to do this a couple of times, turning people over to other agencies. And it's good if you can hand them some sort of actual piece of paper that's got essentially PCR-like information Especially in it. Especially medication administrations and time. Yeah, and that's the thing is because when you turn them over to these other medics, you know, when's the last time they got pain meds or sedation, mm-hmm. whatever, it's, that's information they need. All right, so with that... Should uh, we talk about what actually... Well, let's, yeah, let's say, let's run down. We'll give the list of the actual injuries that were found, and then we'll talk about... I don't know, we'll, Opportunities to look? Yeah, say, and then we'll talk about, yeah, some stuff that we might have changed or done differently. Yeah, why don't you run down your patient first? All right, so for patient one, as we talked about before, still definitely had the laceration over the eye. That's pretty obvious. My girl didn't have quite the laceration that Mike's did, but uh, it was there under control, but the right orbit was indeed fractured. So good guess on my part. They did confirm that the uh, right arm, both radius and ulna, were both definitely broken on that one. The left forearm, if you recall, I said there were some pain and tenders, left wrist, radius was broken there. The abrasions and bruising that went across the back of the ribs, she did end up, I believe, having three fractured ribs mm-hmm. along the side there. And the big one that sort of surprised us, though in hindsight did not surprise us, was she actually had a laceration to the liver. Obviously, it was a fairly minor bleed, but still a laceration to the liver, most likely as a result from whatever compressed those fractures to break them, or the compressed those fractures to break them. Yes, broke the brokens, the fractures that lacerated that liver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that, just the same kneecap, nothing else came back aside from that, although the lacerated liver was the one thing that when we got confirmation back, it was like, oh, that sucks. But it also didn't surprise me based on the injury pattern and the fall and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So other than that, the other one that was obviously suspected was she was hypothermic. Uh, I think they classified her at moderate. So she wasn't in the severe level yet. But no, she was, yours was severe. Mine was moderate. Well, she she, she the, immediately went into one of those. Bear, well, they put her in a bear hugger, yeah, thingies, but, but her core temperature was not the she, best. Well, yeah, they're, yeah, clearly. But and with that, Michael. My patient was actually in a pretty good way. Yeah. Uh, the one we thought was the worst one. She had a couple of cracked ribs and she had a broken arm, but yeah. generally was doing all right. No liver lacerations, no internal bleeding. Was it your patient or my patient that cracked her front tooth? That was well? you. That was mine. Yes. Uh, so she did lose a tooth, wasn't in the best way, but ultimately she didn't have any life-threatening injuries. She just had, I mean, this is... It's not the way to think about it, but, you know, relative cosmetic things like a broken arm, it'll heal, you'll be fine. Might have some scarring to go with that. Yeah, Sean's patient was actually the one that was pretty badly hypothermic and was bleeding internally from a liver laceration. But as I recall, I don't believe they actually went to the OR with her. I think they just monitored. I think they monitored. I I don't remember. It's been a while. I don't remember them actually taking her in for surgery. I know it was because the bleed was was present, but it was fairly minor, um, which to me kind of indicated like, when I had that drop in BP, it was probably related, mm-hmm. given her, you know, obvious a shock state. Mm-hmm. Um, but given the bump, but the bolus were right back up. So at that time, it obviously was not a significant laceration where she was having significant internal bleeding. Uh, again, there was no pain or tenderness with the abdomen. So there would have been short of ultrasound. There would have been no way for me to have identified that in the field. Mm-hmm. So. so what would we have done better? Well, first off, at the time, for various reasons, we had one set of medications between the two of us. Yeah. So there were other providers, other ALS providers that came in, and we handled our medications a little bit differently. Right? You can't have like a a narc a locking narc box locker type of thing in your backpack. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> so we keep narcotics and medications locked up until we pull them from the unit, and then they go into our bag. 
because of the volume of medication in two patients, I had to have a one of the individuals that was, that was running back and forth. I had to ask them to go get me a vial of fentanyl from Sean, yeah, so that I could administer pain medication. And then the additional medications, uh, fentanyl and Zofran, that my patient got before being hoisted had to come from another provider that had come up trail. Yeah, and that's actually a pretty common theme we've experienced in our time doing this, that we're often asking for additional ALS resources to come with additional medications mm-hmm. because of the time we are with patients. Yeah. You know, sometimes we're with people for 12 hours and one vial of fentanyl or two vials of fentanyl ain't going to get you 12 hours of pain management. No. So other things, I would have loved to have not had to have been, I mean, I sort of blushed over it in the story, but I was actively trying to do paramedic level work and also manage incoming resources and request things and answer questions on the radio. It wasn't just a matter of me giving a resource request and then everything happened. Like people were calling on the radio saying, hey, do we need ropes? Do we need this? Do you need another Stokes? I was asking for more warming material. Go get X, Y, or Z is such and such available while also trying to work on a patient. And it's, it just is, right? There wasn't a whole lot I could do about it, Mm -hmm. but I was trying to manage the scene, coordinate inbound resources, get uh, resource requests out and also provide paramedic-level care to a patient that was pretty injured. It was just a lot to do at first until I got somebody there that could take over uh, the command function. Yeah, I think that's, well, and again, it's a lesson learned, but it's one of those lessons that there's no simple answer for just because of the nature of the environment. It just is. It's when the first adult that you knew could handle the physician arrived, you're able to turn it over. Like there were a couple of other young EMTs that were on scene but they were not versed in incident command. And I won't say this was like a mass casualty sort of situation, but almost. It was close. I mean, if you use the textbook definition of it, it overwhelms the available resources. It's questionable, right? Because at first, maybe, but then maybe not later. Yeah, because it's iffy. Because yes, the number of resources that were committed to the scene that were eventually there and ready and to assist and were doing work was a significant portion of the available responders. It only left probably two or three other people available for the whole rest of the area to provide any sort of response for, it didn't matter what it was. Yeah, Um, anything. So that's why I said this was very, very close to making this, you know, a mass casualty incident. Actually, I had to write a paper. I forget what it was for. Oh, one of my classes when I went- Yeah, when you went to school, right? Yeah, when I I got a hair that tickled and I went and- Went back to school and... Uh, That's when you got an associate's Yeah, when I found, did my associate's in paramedicine. And I chose that program because it was an associate's in paramedicine and not some generic EMS something, right? Which just personal thing was cool. Uh, but I had to write a paper about a mass casualty incident. And I actually used this rescue as my example story about how just even two patients, depending on your environment, could create the mass casualty situation. So again, another lesson learned is in the wilderness austere environments, Two patients, one which outside of pain management turned out to be essentially almost BLS level care, right? Basic mm-hmm. trauma care. Pain management was certainly needed for her. Um, looking back, potentially some sedation might have been good for her to get her calmed down a little bit as well. Uh, same with my patient, but at the same time, she was alert. She was answering my questions and I didn't want to monkey with a good thing and mm-hmm. kind of even give her just a couple milligrams of like Versed. Life was good and I didn't want to tempt the fates with, mm-hmm. with, with, at that time, a good stable patient. And again, she didn't really need it. It's just one of those. And I will say, I think for both patients, I know mine in particular, there was a lot of anxiety and apprehension just prior to being hoisted into a helicopter when you were strapped mm-hmm. horizontal into a weird metal, metal basket. basket. 
which at that point might have been good. But then again, now you got to look at she's now being hoisted up into a helicopter, being looked after by, you know, now two medics, one medic who has never seen any of these patients and is mm-hmm. going to just get relayed via comms inside the helicopter en route to the hospital. So I still don't know that I would have changed what I did with my patient overall. Looking back, obviously, I knew she was going to be hypothermic, but at that time, we'd, we were not carrying anything to provide any sort of active warming, like no, none of the like, chemical heat packs or anything else that could have helped start warming her up additionally. You know, we put her in as much clothing as we could, but still, as if you're familiar with this environment and hypothermia, once your patients kind of start down that route, and especially once they're in that trauma state, you've really kind of got to get ahead of that. And this was one of those cases where it was very tricky to do. I basically was able to execute all the standard wilderness things, got her up on a pad, got her insulated from the ground, got her, her outer wet layer. We got off, uh, had to do a little, you know, obviously modesty control because we're in the middle of a very populous area. I'm sure there are videos all over people's other social media things watching us do these events. Dude, do you remember the guy? I do not remember the guy. When right before we went down, I, I just remember this, right before we went down oh. the hill and he stopped us and it, he just... <laughs> Hey guys, is there like a, is there an event going on or anything? Like how often are you out here? Like yeah, he, this, he just was curious about, you know, like regular, like, Hey, how often, how often do things happen? Like, is yeah, this a pretty was, common I occurrence? About that. Yeah, yeah, I, I guy, just take the remember saying, sir, I appreciate your interest. I uh, got to kind of go do work now. But I got some things to do later. Yeah, see you at later. That point, we, we basically hopped over the retaining fence and <laughs> scrambled down this hill to our I patients. I forgot all about that. That is funny. Cause yeah. yeah. Not that I want to be rude, but I kind of got to go. Don't want to be rude, but I kind of got to go down there and take care of the hurt people. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All right. So, (laughs) uh, again, end of the day, would it have been good to have some additional resources for active warming for my patient? Yes. Although, realistically, there's not a lot that can be done in the field. It's tricky. Chemical heat packs is about the only, or start a big old blazing fire, which would not have been a good idea knowing a helicopter was going to be coming overhead. Uh, that's how sparks make their way into other parts of the woods and start forest fires. Yeah. So, and I mean, and realistically where we were starting a fire for the one patient there is not no. realistic. Not the right? best. Uh, it would have been good. Yeah. You know, if we could have, if we weren't down a trail a bit, if we could have had a quick 10 or 15 minute movement up into the back of an ambulance and heated her up, that would have been fantastic. That would have gone a long ways, I think. Uh, but that just, it turned out that wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be feasible. That wasn't going to be the course of action. You know, it determined when the other helicopter said, hey, we'll just fly both. It's like, well, that's good because that will save a significant amount of time and get both of these patients to a level one trauma center much quicker than the other. And as it turns out, you know, old patient number one, the one we had, mine, that we initially kind of thought was not quite as bad just because externally she didn't have quite as many, the uh, significant injury that patient two did. Mm-hmm. There was concern for some internals, but at the time there was nothing that would have led me to believe she had any significant internal bleeding, right? Right. Her vital signs were good and stable, except for the one dip, which given a quick 350 ml bolus, bumped right back up, no issues. So I, I really don't think I would have done much different. I think a big one that ties in with the uh, getting a separate incident commander or rescue commander, whatever you want to call them, on scene is learning sooner that my ground transport had been canceled and that it was going to be another air yeah, if, there, if there's one thing that we could have done better, it wasn't in care, it was in communication. Yes, it was, it was hard to communicate. Communications piece. But also, how often do you have two people 20 yards apart from each yeah. other in a very loud environment? So. Yeah, and again, that's, like I said, that's one of the things we could have done, but it wouldn't have changed patient outcomes, right. even in the slightest. All the treatments would have remained the same. They all got, all, both of them, they both got pain management, you know, fractures were splinted, 
cuts were bandaged and cleaned out as best we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, made use of all the available resources. And all in all, it was a very good rescue. It was effected fairly quickly. Uh, you know, Probably what, hour and a half total? Uh, probably closer to two some hours. Yeah. Total start to finish. But again, for a remote area that required helicopters to get people moving, yes, that was good. And you might have heard us previous episodes. The closest ambulance outside of our response area to get to us is a minimum of 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's absolute minimum. So, and that may be an ambulance, may not be a medic unit. And that is most often, yes. Uh, especially, and this was on a weekend. And so a lot of times those ambulances are volunteer staffed and they are BLS only. Mm-hmm. And so it might have been a BLS ambulance, which again, which is why I was planning to stay behind. If we had to ride in a BLS unit, mm-hmm. I was going to be that medic with my drugs. But all in all, the operation, I think, oh, uh, we're going to end this episode now. And that's a call for our help. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.